Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. For his divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads and ask his guidance and direction on this study. Our Father, we're thankful again that we can come, come together to remember who you are and what you have done for us, that you are the one who created us, and that because of sin, we have been alienated from your life. And the only way to be restored, to recover, to be uh, regenerated, born again, is to trust in Christ. And God the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new creatures, alive spiritually, no longer alienated to you. And as such, we are to study your word. And as we have sung, it is your word that stands, that has stood throughout the ages. And even though it faces much opposition at times and in certain places, It is never defeated, and it always produces the end that you have determined. So, Father, we pray now that as we study your word, that it might be used by God the Holy Spirit to mature us and to sanctify us. As our Lord prayed, we are sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. And so we ask that you guide and direct our thinking, open our eyes to the truth. This morning we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we have been going through a study of Ephesians for uh, some time, and we are in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And we have come to this section where it is talking about really a, the threefold ministries of the, of, uh, the Trinity, The first three lines relate to uh, God, the Holy Spirit. The second line refers to God, the Son, and the last one to God, the Father. Related to the Spirit, it says that there is one body and spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And then the second line, which is verse 5, one Lord. So now we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, And it's interesting, I never made this connection before, but since we talked about the baptism by the Spirit several weeks ago, and I worked us through the grammar that it is Christ who is the one who performs the baptism by the Spirit, that is why baptism is here and not in the previous line with the Holy Spirit, because Christ baptizes by means of the Spirit. So he is the subject of that verb, So that is why it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in all. So we've been looking at the ministries of God the Holy Spirit as they have been taught in Ephesians and in the rest of the New Testament. And to do that, we broke them down and we looked at two broad ministries of God the Holy Spirit uh, to the world that he restrains and he convicts those who are unsaved 
They, they are convicted of, of righteousness and uh, judgment. And so we have uh, that ministry, and he restrains evil. And so even though there is much evil in the world, there always has been a lot of evil in the world, but we are told in Scripture that the Holy Spirit restrains, and at some point in the future, he will be removed and he will allow evil to reach its full conclusion. Why is it that God continues to wait to bring things to an end? Because God desires for everyone to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean all will be saved, but that is God's desire. So he is giving a human race time so that as many as possible can be saved. And at some point, God will bring history to a conclusion when there is judgment. For the believer, we have seen that at the instant of salvation, that God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That is, he makes us alive again. And that relates, we'll see in a minute, to uh, trusting in Christ as Savior, and then we are no longer alienated from the life of God. We're baptized by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, and now we're looking at the filling of the Spirit. So all of this is just expanding on verse 4. Now, here's the chart, and we want to work our way through this a little bit this morning, a little more Precisely, at some point in all of our lives, we came to a point where somebody explained to us what is called the good news of the scripture, the gospel. That's what gospel means. It relates to the good news that we don't have to remain spiritually dead, but we are we can be made spiritually alive. It's not on the basis of anything that we do, but it is on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. And so we go through the reasons why we have the cross. Why did Christ have to go to the cross? And it is because of the sinful condition of man. That is a word, sin, that is often misunderstood today and has often been misunderstood. Some people think sin only relates to the really bad things, but sin relates to anything, any thought, word, or deed that is contrary to the character and the plan of God. And that means that uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous. God is absolute perfect righteousness, and he cannot have anything to do with that which is unrighteous. So being being unrighteous, something has to be done to make us righteous. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes every Christian. That includes every human being except Jesus Christ because he was, he entered into human history by means of the virgin birth and he was without sin. That's what qualified him to go to the cross for us. He was the God man who entered into human history, he became a human being so that he could die as our substitute. So we have, we're told, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Ephesians 2, 1, as we've studied, Paul wrote, and you who were born dead in trespasses and sins. So everybody's got the same problem. And there's no room for any arrogance, thinking that, well, I'm better than you are because 
when you compare somebody who is microscopically better than somebody else in the eyes of God, then it doesn't mean anything. Because when God's standard is a standard of absolute perfection, and let's say that standard is 100 miles high, and we don't even make it as high as stacking three atoms on top of each other in our meager little weak efforts to produce righteousness, then the result is that we are still condemned because we lack righteousness. But the good news is what is stated in John 3:16 through 18. For God loved the world, and in the Greek it means God loved the world in this way. He's going to tell us the ultimate example of what love is, that he gave his only begotten son, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, what I always like to point out in this verse is that it doesn't say believes and changes his life. It doesn't say believes and be good. Uh, It doesn't say believe and be good enough. Uh, Believe and never do those things you've been doing. It just says simply believe. And the word believe has that idea of having confidence in something that it is true, that this statement is true, that Christ died for us. And if we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we rely upon what he did on the cross, then we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. For verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world, that is, at the first coming. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't go around finger-pointing and pointing out everybody's sins. Uh, He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18 says, he who believes, and there's a contrast between the one who believes and the one who doesn't believe. Notice the contrast is not between the one who committed certain sins and the one who did not commit those sins. The contrast is on whether or not someone believes. He who believes in him is not condemned. Why is that? Well, we've studied this many times. We're not condemned because the instant we believe in Christ, his perfect righteousness is legally imputed to us. So that when it is legally imputed to us, when God looks at us now as a judge, he sees us covered with the righteousness of Christ. Now, that doesn't change us on the inside. This is not a righteousness that that is infused so that it makes us more moral or better. It is a covering. We are covered by the righteousness of Christ, and we still sin, and we can still sin just as badly as we sinned before we were saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. It is the, the object of belief that is important. The object is the cross, Jesus Christ's death. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why is he already condemned? Because he's not righteous. That was the verse we looked at earlier in Romans 3, that there is none righteous, not one. We're all born spiritually dead and in a state of unrighteousness and therefore condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Not because of his sins, but because he has not 
believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Name of means character of, in who he is, and Christ is our Savior. So Acts 16.31, which I always have up here on that picture with the cross, simply says that we are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So that's the foundation. That's how we become a Christian. So as I develop this chart, on the left we have eternal realities. These are the things that God does for us at the instant of salvation that are ours forever. They are our legal rights, our legal position before God. The right side is going to talk about our day-to-day life, our day-to-day experiences. The eternal realities never change, but the day-to-day realities do change. So I use a white circle because, as we read earlier in Ephesians 5, we're told that as believers we are Light. We are light in the Lord. We are sons of light. That's our new identity when we trust in Christ as Savior. And so we are light, sons of light in Christ, and we are placed into Christ by what we studied, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That is referred to by theologians as positional truth. It's our new position in Christ. It's our new identity. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians For one, when he talks about the the fact that we are to walk worthy of that calling with which we have been called, the calling relates to our new exalted position, our new identity as members of the royal family of God. When you grow up, you're in a family, and more than likely there were times when you were disobedient to your parents, and they said something that indicated that if you're part of this family, you don't act like that. There are certain standards that we're trying to communicate and teach you that this is how our family lives and operates. And so that's the position. If you're in that position in that family, then these are the standards, these are the guidelines of that family. Well, we are to walk according to our exalted position because we are in Christ and in God's family. Now, on the right side, it describes our walk. We can walk in the light or not walk in the light. That's what Paul said. You are sons of light, therefore walk as children of light. But we don't always do that. Now, what enables us to walk in the light is what we're studying this morning and studied last week is this phrase in the Scripture that should be translated filled by the Holy Spirit. It is related to the phrase in Ephesians, I mean in Galatians 5.18, that we are to walk, that is to live our life by means of or independence of the Holy Spirit. The position in Christ is that of the called. We are to walk by the Spirit. So what are these different ministries? That's what we've been studying, is what the Bible teaches about these ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. And we looked, as I said in the review earlier, Uh, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to the world, his restraining ministry that he restrains now until he is taken away. And we know that that will come at what we refer to as the rapture when Christ returns in the air. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. 
and we will go to heaven, thus we will forever be with the Lord. At that time, because we are all indwelt by the Spirit, and because, as Ephesians 2, uh, 20 to 22 talks about, we are, the, the church is growing together, being grown together by the Holy Spirit, who indwells the corporate body of Christ as well as each individual, and he is building this new temple. When that is taken to heaven, then there will no longer be a restrainer on the earth to restrain evil. The other thing is he convicts unbelievers with regard to three things, to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus explained that. He said in verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. Now remember, I just went through John 3.18, which says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So they are, because the the sin problem, the problem of their being born spiritually dead and in unrighteousness, that they have not believed in Christ, therefore uh, they are still under condemnation. So that's what Jesus means by that. In verse 10, he says, Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more that his re- Paul connects his resurrection to our justification in Romans chapter 4. And then third, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is doomed. The ruler of the world is Satan, the devil. And then we looked at the ministries to believers, regeneration, that we are born in a state of spiritual death, which means we're separated from the life of God, we're alienated from the life of God. Uh, we still have many, many capacities, and we enjoy a lot of different things, but not as we would if we were spiritually alive. And so we are alienated from that life of God. When Jesus is talking to a Jewish rabbi, His name was Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was probably a title, something close to that, or it was sort of a nickname because it means a ruler of the people. And Nico comes from the Greek goddess Nike, or Nike is how you hear it pronounced, and that's the god of victory. And it has various nuances, and it can mean a ruler or overseer or overcomer, something like that. And then the second part of his name, Demos, well, we use a form of that whenever we talk about democracy, Demos. That means people. So Nicodemus was a ruler of the people, and he was said to have been uh, not only extremely wealthy, but the best teacher of the Torah, the best teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures in Jerusalem. Nobody knew more about the Hebrew Scriptures than Nicodemus. And so Jesus and Nicodemus have a meeting, and Jesus, he he starts to ask Jesus, we know you must be from God because of these miracles you do. So he affirms the legitimacy of his miracles. But Jesus knows what the real issue is and and what he really wants to ask. And so Jesus answered by saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
In other words, unless you are born again or regenerated or made alive again, uh, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That really confused Nicodemus because according to rabbinical teaching, there were about six different ways that a person could be, quote, born again. And he had pretty much covered all those bases. He was married. He was a rabbi, a number of other cultural things. Yet now he's really confused. And so Jesus had to go on and explain what that meant, which that that he who is born physically, that which is uh, born of water is water, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit, that there needs to be a spiritual rebirth. This is what Paul describes in Titus 3.5, that this spiritual rebirth is not by works of righteousness. It's not by anything that we do. You don't get brownie points for going to church. You don't get brownie points because you give to the poor, you help the poor. You don't get brownie points because instead of saying something nasty, you said something nice. Instead of getting irritable and losing your uh, temper, you remained calm. You don't get any points for that. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy. Mercy is grace in action. Grace means that we don't deserve it at all, but God, out of his love, gives us salvation because of what Christ did on the cross if we trust in him. That's the only condition. According to his mercy, he saves us through the washing of regeneration. And that should be translated even or that is the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So when we trust in Christ, God the Holy Spirit renews us, regenerates us, makes us a new creature in Christ. It's not anything we feel. It's not anything we experience. You can have a migraine headache and trust in Christ as your Savior, and you're still going to have probably have a migraine headache. You can be in a situation when you're tired, you're exhausted, maybe you're dying from cancer, and you're pretty miserable, and that's not going to go away. This is a non-experiential reality. We don't really know about it until after we have trusted Christ and we study the Scriptures and understand what happened. And so this is related to the baptism by the Spirit, which is how we are entered into Christ as Christ uses the Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is fundamental today. We hear a lot of talk today about racism and sexism, and we hear talk about uh, having a system of government that produces equity rather than equality, equity where everybody's supposed to have the same uh, rather than equality, meaning equal opportunity. But as Christians, we recognize that if we have trusted in Christ as Savior, we have been baptized into Christ and therefore put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, because in the Old Testament there were these racial, this one legitimate racial distinction because God called out the Jews as a special people through whom he would reveal his word and they would be the custodians, the ones who transmitted the word of God and preserved it down through the centuries. 
And when Christ died on the cross, as we studied in the second chapter of Ephesians, when Christ died on the cross, he abolished the enmity between Jew and Gentile so that now in Christ there's no racial distinction whatsoever. So for the Christian, racism is any time that we put a person's culture or language or skin color or ethnicity or economic position or gender as more important than our position in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't role distinctions, but they're not based on inequality because we are all one in Christ and equal in Christ. Now, the thing to note about all of these ministries we're starting with is that there's no command to do any of them. We're no command to be baptized by the Spirit, no command to be indwelt by the Spirit, uh, no command to be sealed by the Spirit. These are all non-experiential things that happen instantly at the moment of faith in Christ, except for this one, the filling by the Holy Spirit. Now, last time, just to remind you, is there's confusion about this because of the way uh, certain words are translated from Greek to English. Greek is the language that the New Testament was written in. And this is caused by the fact that you actually have three different Greek words that are used to express an idea related to filling. The word on the left is pimplemi. You see that I've made the three letters in the middle blue. That relates back to some root play that shows up also in a second word, plerao. And a third word that's an adjective, play race. Now, these words have three different meanings. They may be similar, but they have three different meanings based on different usage. And as I keep pointing out, words are defined not by the dictionary, but by how people use words. That's why dictionaries keep getting updated is because language changes and word meaning changes. For example, in the uh, King, original King James Version, in 1 Corinthians 13, it uses the word charity. Well, charity today doesn't mean what it meant in 1611. And so it has been updated because the, the word there is agape, and it means love. And so we, we have to watch these things. So how a word is used determines its meaning. And I went through a variety of passages in Acts which talk about various disciples and other believers being uh, full of the Spirit, which is the adjectival word, play race, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And I contrasted that to the same idiom where you see someone described as full of duplicity and deception. That really helps us understand this phrase. It's a descriptive phrase of a person's character. It's not using the word in Ephesians 5.18, which is the middle word, plerao. It's used of, it's an adjective used with a genitive construction. Uh, not, I'm ex- yes, a genitive construction, not a dative construction that we have in Ephesians 5.18. And what that means is that these words are describing different things. I went through a lot of passages using pimplemi, and pimplemi is a word that uh, is used when there's usually some, almost every time when somebody's said to be filled with the Spirit 
it is followed by, and then they said. So that Pimplamy describes an unexpected act of the Holy Spirit on that individual where they have some sort of inspired utterance afterward. And that only happened a few times in the New Testament. It happened with John the Baptist's father, with John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. It happened uh, two or three times in the book of Acts. It happened to Mary, the mother of the humanity of Jesus. And so those were special uh, statements that they made. It's repeated. It's not something that characterized their life at all. It was just a one-time event. But because all of these phrases tend to be translated the same way in English, like full of the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, then if you read it in English, it looks like they're all talking about the same thing. But if you look at the Greek, they're using different words and different grammatical constructions, so they're talking about completely different things. And all of the uses of of uh, pimplemi and play race are describing something that happened. But what we have in Ephesians 5.18 is a command. Be filled, and then it's followed by a wor- word in the, in the dative case, which has the idea it's a preposition plus the dative of pneuma, which is the word for spirit, and it has the idea of by means of the spirit. So we read the verse, it says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled, and it should be translated, be filled by means of the Spirit. Because that English preposition with is a word that indicates uh, possibly content. Fill my cup with coffee. Coffee is the content of what the cup is being filled with. But the Holy Spirit is not the content that we're being filled with. That's one of the views, uh, interpretations. Now, how can I say that so dogmatically? Because in Greek, content is indicated with a genitive, not with a dative. Dative indicates instrumental means, especially when we understand this contrast with wine. So it should be translated as by means of because it gets past these confusing prepositions that that, uh, can mean, like with can mean instrumental at times, but a lot of times more often than not it has to do with association or content. And so it's filled, fill, fill my cup. If I had a coffee cup here, I'd say fill my cup with that pitcher. The pitcher is the means of filling the cup with content, okay? If I say fill my cup with coffee, coffee's the content, I'd have to use a genitive. If I use a dative, then I'm indicating the means by which the filling takes place. But what always gets people confused, and you will hear more preachers make this error than not, is, um, in fact, about 95% probably make this error, uh, they will say, well, what's the, what's the comparison here or contrast? The contrast is with being drunk with wine. What's, what's going on with being drunk with wine? And they will say it has to do with control. When somebody's drunk, they lose control. 
okay? The wine's controlling them. You know, we've often heard the phrase, well, the booze made him do it, or it's the whiskey talking or the beer talking, something like that. But this, again, is an instrumental word. It should be, do not be drunk by means of wine. Now, that's a real clue if you understand the historical context. And that's what a lot of people miss. And um, it's been brought out, uh, one commentator uh, in the mid-20th century raised a question, why does he contrast wine being drunk with the filling by means of the Spirit? What's going on here? One of my seminary professors, who's quite brilliant, was he was uh, he probably was in his 60s at the time, and he had he was a polyglot, multilinguist, and he had been teaching in Germany for probably about uh, 20 years at this point, and he was just brilliant in 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 his knowledge and understanding of the Greek. And he broke this down in an excellent article that he published in the Theological Journal, which just had a lot of excellent, excellent analysis. Paul says, don't be drunk by means of wine. He's, you're using wine to get drunk for another end. You're not just using wine for the sake of getting drunk. You're using wine to get drunk for another purpose. That's the means. And what we then have is this word in English, it's dissipation, which means something that is just wasteful. The Greek word is the word asotia. So it's a word that has the idea of something that is in excess, something maybe incurable or unhealthy, or something that is dissipation. But the second meaning is really the idea of being wild, wild and disorderly conduct. And it's used to describe this kind of wild and disorderly context, uh, conduct in various texts, ancient texts. And that's the author of the, the, the article, is Cleon Rogers. And so he makes this pretty clear that the one who is destroying his life by his manner of life, by his dissipation. He's just wasting his life, and he's in a mode of self, self-destruction. But another person who analyzed this says, in all of these passages, the word signifies wild and disorderly rather than extravagant or voluptuous living. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, why? What's going on here? What's going on in the background? Paul is writing a letter to Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. Today we have excavated almost all of Ephesus, and it's the largest archaeological excavation in the Bible lands. And it is on the western almost the western coast. It was at that time on the western coast of Turkey. Today, the, because of the silting in of the river, it is uh, about 10 miles now from the, from the water. But back then, it was one of the major harbors. They had several major Greek religions that operated in, in uh, Ephesus. One that is brought out in the scripture is um, 
the worship of a Greek goddess named Artemis. There's a lot of discussion, debate over who exactly this Artemis was. Was it the same as the Diana, the Huntress, or different? But that's another issue. But another religion that was very popular throughout the ancient world was a mystery religion. Mystery religions, you had to go through some sort of initiatory rite, and and you had some sort of of encounter with the god or goddess in some sort of mystical uh, encounter. And so this is spoken of by Mark Antony. Remember Mark Antony from the story of Caesar and Cleopatra. Mark Antony was one of uh, Caesar's uh, great generals, and then there was a rebellion and uh, various other things that happened. But Plutarch, who was a... Uh, gr- Greek writer and historian who lived from 46 A.D. to 119. So he is born about 10 years after, 10 or 12 years after Christ was crucified. And he his life overlaps that of the writing of most of the New Testament. And when he is describing Mark Antony entering into Ephesus, he says, they threw this huge parade for him. And he describes it, women arrayed like Bacchanals. Now, what's that? Bacchus was the Greek god of wine. That's the Roman name, uh, also known as Dionysius. And if you have the God of wine, how do you think that you celebrate the God of wine? Well, it's going to involve wine, if you hadn't guessed, <laughs> and a lot of wine. And so they, the typical of the various different mystery religions is they went up into these kind of groves and wooded areas, and they would have their little secret things that would go on up there. But it always involved, with Dionysius, it always involved getting rip-roaring drunk, and then they would have relations with the priestesses, because Dionysius' worship was always uh, seen with these bacchanals or the 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 priestesses. So uh, Plutarch describes them as women arrayed like bacchanals, and men and boys like satyrs and pans led the way before him, and the city was full of ivy and thyrus wands and harps and pipes and flutes. All of these things had some symbolism with Dionysian worship. Hailing him as Dionysius, giver of joy and beneficent. Okay, so that describes it. But he goes further. Uh, Dr. Rogers in his article says, Another feature of the festivals was the wild, frenzied dancing and uncontrolled ravings in connection with wine drinking and the music of flutes, cymbals, drums, or tambourines. They just got rip-roaring drunk, and that was the whole purpose, because if you got drunk enough, the God would enter into you, and you would be filled with the God, okay, by means of wine. So he goes on to say, along with this was the mountain dancing of the women, which sometimes took place in the dead of winter, and the devouring of the raw flesh of animals. The purpose of the intoxication by wine and also the chewing of ivy as well as the eating of raw animal flesh was to have Dionysius enter the body of the worshiper and fill him with enthusiasm. That's a more antiquated English word for just plain emotional excitement. 
you're just going to get as ecstatic as you can, all by means of wine, and the Spirit of God enters you. He goes on to say, Dionysius was to possess and control such ones so that they were united with him and partook of his strength, wisdom, and abilities. This resulted in the person doing the will of the deity, either willingly or unwillingly, and having the ability to speak inspired prophecy, think about tongues, and was often thought to be the source of artistic or poetical ability. So when the text says, don't be drunk with wine, Paul understands the culture and he is saying, don't use, don't use wine as a means of being united with God and being spiritual, but be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the means, but he doesn't tell us what the content of it is. So what's the content of the filling? What are you being filled with? Well, let's look at what the results are from the being filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21 lists several, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Actually, that ought to be probably translated singing, but that's what it is. It's singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So being filled by the Spirit, the first result listed both here and in Colossians is singing. Now, I know some people are just shy about singing. Some people didn't grow up in an environment in, in church or at school where they were taught anything about singing. But And so some people just don't. But the Spirit of God filling you produces singing as an evidence of someone who is being filled by the Spirit. Just a thought that even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, it's not an excuse. Okay? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So this is when maybe you're just thinking it, but beforehand it was speaking it, saying it out loud. So the second phrase doesn't negate the first phrase, doesn't give you an, an excuse for not singing. Second thing is giving thanks, being grateful, gratitude, showing gratitude, thanking people for the things that they do, thanking God above all for Uh, We're told in Scripture to thank God for all things and in all things, no matter how badly things may be at times, we are to give thanks to God. So we give thanks to God always, not when it's only going the way you want it to, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So see, this is another one of Paul's Trinitarian passages. We have filled by the Spirit, and we give thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Well, if we go to the parallel epistle in Colossians, the command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned. Ephesians 5 says, be filled by the Spirit, and it gives the results. Here the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's content. What's the results? in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same result that being filled by the Spirit produces. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So the second area of result is gratitude toward God for all things. 
and then submission and goes through the role of wives and husbands just as Ephesians 5 does. So when we put them side by side, we see that, that both passages talk about the result in speaking and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. And I always love this. Dr. Ryrie makes a comment in one of his notes in his study Bible that you have to have good words, meaningful words, for it to teach anybody something. Think about that. When you're looking at most, by that I mean 99.99% of the choruses that are sung today, they're not teaching anybody anything. And that's the purpose of the uh, speaking to one another and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are to instruct us and to admonish us and to give thanks, mentioned in both passages and in the, to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then submission. So if filling by means of the Spirit produces a set of results and letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you produces the same set of results, then letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you and being filled by the Spirit are two sides of the same coin. It is we are filled with something by the Holy Spirit. The something is the word of Christ that is richly dwelling in us. And so we put the passage together and we understand that the purpose for being filled by the Spirit has to do with learning and applying the Word of God and being able to store it in our souls and God the Holy Spirit brings it back to memory. So back to our chart. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we have a new position. We're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And all of us are one in Christ. In terms of our day-to-day experience, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. In Galatians, it talks about this as the product of walking by the Spirit. But if we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. And so this is the problem. This is in black. It's harder for you to see on the bottom of the screen. But it's the sin nature and a black blob. And when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We are in, under the control of the flesh. Being filled by the Spirit isn't control like wine. Some people say that. It's influence. What's influencing you, the Holy Spirit or your sin nature? When we're not walking by the Spirit, the sin nature is influencing us. And until, and we, how do we recover? We recover through 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins. That's why we emphasize that as a pedagogical practice before we start every class, is that this is the only way that we can recover from the sin nature control, walking according to the flesh, which is described after the command to walk by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 18 and following. Now, this is the core it's not the, the only thing that's important for the spiritual life, but it is the, the basis. We don't, ha- we don't really 
exercise our spiritual life unless we're walking by the Spirit. And when we sin, that stops. We're walking according to the sin nature, and the only way to recover is confess sin. And then we have a number of other things that are just as important. And when we do this, then we experience the fullness of the life that God has given us. In John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Jesus didn't give, come to tell people, oh, you can't do this and you can't do this and you've got to go, go around and do all of these things that you really don't want to do and give up all your pleasures. He said, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. That when we are walking with the Spirit, we are realizing God's purpose for our lives. Jesus made this statement in John 14, 6. See, here in John 10, 10, he said, I've come to give them life. How can he do that? Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's an audacious statement to make, to claim that you are the epitome of life, and without you there's no life. That's what Jesus said. That either means he was psychotic and he thought he was something that he was not, he was self-deceived, or he was a liar and was trying to deceive everyone, and his life does not exhibit either psychotic traits or the traits of a con man. So that only leaves one option, that he was telling the truth, that he is the, the truth and he is the life and the only way to God. In John 11:25, Jesus said, to, uh, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And that is the gospel, the good news, that when we trust in Christ, we have everlasting life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through these ministries of God the Holy Spirit and their significance for our life today, their significance for our understanding of salvation, the understanding of uh, what you have provided for us that we may live by means of the Spirit to experience that abundant life that Jesus came to give us and that we have only through walking by the Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that as, as this message goes out over the Internet and for anyone here who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they may understand that the issue isn't your failures, your sins, your flaws, all of these other things that people make an issue out of. The issue, the Scripture says, is whether you have trusted in Christ. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, Father, we pray that you would make this very clear, that God the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that He is that Christ is the only way to eternal life. And simply by trusting in him, you give us that gift. Father, we pray for us that we might recognize what it means to walk by the Spirit and to be filled by the Spirit and that we may make the study of your word our highest priority so that we may come to realize and understand 
all of the many blessings that you have given us and all that we have in Christ in terms of our new high calling, our high position, that we may live in accordance with it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.